We're in 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning, continuing on, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and we will continue on with this theme that Peter has been driving at for chapters about us sharing in the sufferings of Christ, that if necessary, as we live the Christian life, it will bring us into conflict with this world. And the conflict that we will see this morning is that when we make a decisive break with sin, that the people around us will not just understand this, but they will instead malign us and exclude us, and suffering will come with it. But the first part, just a reminder, those that have not been with us, in chapter 2, verse 21, Peter begins this journey when he says, For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So we'll see a little bit more of this this morning. Please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin." So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way the people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, we begin this morning with, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. An unusual phrase, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. One of the passages in the New Testament, Paul speaks about arming ourselves, putting on the whole armor of God. It's the idea that there is an offensive direction to the Christian life and sometimes a defensive way and that we ought to have a posture that is not relaxed but a posture that is ready to engage with evil things and to be proactive in what we're doing. And so in this passage, we are called to take upon ourselves the same way of thinking that Christ Jesus took on himself when he suffered. And so the bigger picture of thinking as Christ thinks or taking on yourself the thinking of Christ is spoken to us in a number of ways in the scriptures. I'll read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself 
to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Very interesting passage. It talks about us before we were in Christ and the things of the Lord did not make sense to us. And you experience this when you go and talk about Christ to your lost neighbors or your lost co-workers and they're like, what are you talking about? And it seems like folly or foolishness to them because they do not have the spirit of the Lord. The things of God are discerned by the spirit of God. It's when we come to salvation and that God's spirit indwells our heart that we have the ability to begin to understand the mind of God. But this is always connected with the scriptures, with the Bible, God's revelation of himself. And there is this pairing together of the spirit and the word to come to a right understanding of who God is. There are many academics out in the world that study the Bible as an ancient text and they have nothing of the Spirit of God and they don't believe anything that's here. I went to a religion department uh, at the college that I went to where the New Testament professors didn't believe anything about the New Testament, but they taught it to us as a book. But there are those that seek after the Spirit of God but reject the Word of God. And in seeking after a religious experience, they become derailed because they don't have the the word of the Lord to guide them in this journey. And so as we seek to understand the mind of God, or as it is said here, to arm yourself with the thinking of Christ, it will take us into the spirit and the word and seeking to immerse ourselves in these things so that our progress is evident. This is, this is a f- series of phrases taken right out of the way that Paul challenges Timothy. He says, immerse yourself in the study of the scriptures and in seeking after God so that your, your progress is evident to all people. That we are seeking after Christ in such a way that it remarkably changes us. And that we're not a little bit different, but we are different in a a complete way from those who seek after the world. And as we seek to take on this mind of Christ, it will cause us to do what is mentioned next in verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So this suffering that will come to us as we go in a different direction than the world will cause us to cease from sin is the phrase that is used here by Peter. To understand this rightly, we need to look elsewhere in the scriptures to understand what it means, what Peter is aiming at here, because this can misguide people if you take only this phrase. And so let's look over just a few pages to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read quite a few verses here, chapter 1, verses 5 through 2, 3. Because this idea of the sinfulness of the world, the holiness of God, and salvation, which is moving from death to life, moving from being enslaved to sin to being free in Christ, is a process, a process that has a direction and certain important markers. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So there's a lot going on in that passage. There's a lot going on. There's this declaration that we are sinners, that God is righteous, that he is calling us to righteousness. A clear statement, one of the most important verses in the New Testament, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we don't have any sin, we're lying because we are sinners and we need forgiveness. But there is to be a direction to our lives. Verse 6, a little bit later, says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. As followers of Christ, there is to be a decisive break with sin in our lives. The greater language that's used in the scriptures is the enslavement of sin. When we were, in, when we were in the world, before we came to know Christ, we were enslaved to sin. We could strive to get away from certain things, but our self-control in and of ourselves is not able to break that bondage. We have to come to Christ, be given a new heart, be reborn in God. And then the power of sin and death is broken in our life. It doesn't mean that we, as we all know, instantly become without sin. The struggle continues, but there is progress. There is a noticeable and significant change of direction in our life. We cease to sin means that we live a life not characterized by sin, especially sin that we ought not to love and cling to. The affections of our heart are no longer set on the world, but they are set on Jesus. We love Jesus. We love his ways. We love him. His love is being perfected in us as we are obeying and following after him. And this passage and others bring us straight into a conflict that's been in the church for, for a long, long time. One of the big uh, debating factions was back during the first great awakening between John Wesley and George Whitfield. It has to do with, can we be perfected in this life or not? And John Wesley preached openly and passionately that you can be, reach a perfect state in this life. And George Whitfield was very clear that you cannot. And I am definitely on the side with Whitfield. I just find this an odd argument that you go around and say, like, for real? Does anybody really believe that you are, can live a perfect life? I actually heard a sermon from someone recently from the pulpit. This person said, I know some of you out here are still struggling with sin. I'm like, that, that, is, a, that is an unbelievably proud statement. Yeah, yeah, we're all still struggling with sin, but apparently you don't think that you are. And this is a confusion of clear language in the Bible. That had, there are specific language that is attached to the progress of our salvation. That we are born again. We are justified, declared not guilty. That we then enter into a period of sanctification. Where we are growing in godliness in this life. And then there is something called glorification. Where we enter into heaven. And not only is the bondage of sin broken in our life. But the presence of sin is removed from this. This is the glory of heaven. And anyone that would expect to reach perfection in this life is saying that somehow heaven is going to come down to this earth. And it's not. 
It is something that we will experience later. And for now, we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ as we labor against sin and seek to press it out of our life. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, it will be progressively rooted out of our life. And as the years go on, you will see progress in your life. Things that used to hold you, that are released, things that uh, used to tempt you that are not as tempting anymore. And this is a part of sanctification. Verse 2 says this, because of the love of Jesus, um, because of a love of Jesus and a knowledge of his will, a passion to live the rest of our lives will come upon us for the Lord. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So, those of you especially that came to, to Christ later in life know what your previous life was like. And it's time to leave all that behind. And the rest of your life, not for a period in your life, but for the rest of your life, you're going to live for the will of God. Putting off old things, putting behind us sinful things, putting to death things that are rising up to tempt us. And they're listed right here. There's a long list of them. Let's see, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, and it's all summed up by the term debauchery. So let's look at this list a little bit. This is the list of what it means to live out in the world and pursue the things of the world. The first is sensuality or, or sexual sin. This is almost always in these passages. Because what you do with yourself sexually matters. It's related to the passions of your heart. And it must be directed in the way that God would have it to be directed so that it is something that binds and something that is joyful and something that is to be celebrated before God, not something that is sinful. And so this world will tell you to give vent to all of your sexual passions. Go and express these things. And if you don't, you're somehow um, holding yourself back. But the scriptures tell us that unbridled sexual expression is a sure marker of sinfulness in the world. Drunkenness. There's nothing new here. Like you might read this list and say, man, this sounds like a lot like today. Well, it, it does. But it also sounded a lot like the time of Noah and times of any time in the world where there's been great ungodliness. And drunkenness is brought in to, to pour on your conscience so the conscience that tells you, I ought to hold back from this, this is not right. By getting drunk, you drown out that conscience. And so your inhibitions are set free and you enter into doing things that you would never otherwise do. This is why drunkenness is forbidden for a Christian. God has given you a conscience for a reason and you should not drown it out. And so the removing of moral restraint, all of it summed up by debauchery. What a powerful word that is. The definition of debauchery is extreme indulgence in bodily pleasures, especially sexual. And so that it goes over into what is called decadence. This is, what, this is what the fall of the Roman Empire was about. Debauchery and decadence, destroying an entire culture. And so it is, we are to turn away from these things, to leave these things in the past. And when you come to salvation in Christ Jesus... And you say, by God's help, I'm going to leave these things in the past. And you go back to those friends and you say, hey, come with me to church. Or, or you know, let's do something else. Nobody wants to do it. Like, what are you talking about? And then you get shut out. And they talk bad about you. They stop inviting you to things. And there is a definite coldness and a break between these things. They malign you. 
Almost everyone here has experienced this in some way or another as you have sought after Christ. Something that you thought you would be invited to, you're not. Something that people are talking about, they're talking about behind your back because they don't want you to know. And yes, this is a small thing. We've talked about martyrs and all kinds of other things, but it's real. And we know what it's like to be maligned by others. But we must associate ourselves with Christ and knowing that he was also maligned for his righteousness And we must walk away from these things, putting them in the past and taking up a new way of living, which is outlined for us here in a moment. But as we go forward to that, I want to tell you a story, a story that's important to me, a story that's uh, been told to me a number of times by my dad. Uh, I love my dad, I love my mom. And my dad was one who was not raised in a Christian home and struggled with all the things of the world and even alcoholism in high school. And when he came to salvation, he made a decisive break with the things of this world. And it was something that came upon him in clear focus when he went from high school to college and, you know, went to college and the same old things, gets pulled into the the frat party and, you know, somebody pulls a girl up next to him and puts a beer in his hand and here we are right back where I used to be. And I love the story that he tells, that as he was there, it was as if the Lord spoke to him and said, you are not this way anymore. You're a different person. So he put the beer down, and he walked out of the frat house, and he never came back. And he lived a different life. And I was raised by that man and then that mother. And that's where I came from. And so I thank God for that, that he made a decisive break with this world because he loved Jesus, and his love for Jesus drove him to live in a different way. And that's what we're talking about here. This is not something that is hypothetical. This is a different direction to your life because you love Jesus. And so I'm thankful for my dad. Those who are truly in Christ will cease to sin. They're not perfect in this life, but there is a decisive, notable break with the things of this world. Sometimes it will leave you standing alone, but that's okay because Christ Jesus will always be standing with you. His spirit will be with you, and you will know that you are not alone. But if the Lord calls you to stand in that way, you must so stand. And as it says in verse 5, there's a pressure, a push more than just an encouragement. There's a reminder, a warning that we will all one day stand before the throne of God. We will have to give an account before God to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead that all will one day be laid bare before him. I'm going to read a little bit for us from Matthew chapter 25 about the last judgment and Jesus on his throne. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all angels with him, then we will sit on his glorious throne, that he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Going to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's a sobering picture of Jesus, who is the final judge. I'm not your judge. Nobody in this room is your judge, but Jesus is the judge. 
He who knows all things will separate the righteous from the wicked in the end of all things. All will be laid bare. All will be, will be made known. And the wicked will not escape judgment. It says here that God will judge the living and the dead. It's an important thing. The living, of course, are those that in the second coming of Christ are taken up in that time. And yes, we will stand before this judgment seat, but we will be pardoned by the mercy of Christ. And what a joy that is. Hallelujah. But those who die in their sins, especially those that seem to escape judgment, will be judged. My mind first goes when I read this passage to a person like Jeffrey Epstein, someone who lived a grossly wicked life, a whole life devoted to abusing women, and in the end seems to escape judgment, either by his, his own hand or somebody else killing him. But it's like, this is not fair. But he will stand before God one day for his sins, and he will be judged. But before we start pointing fingers at other people that we know are wicked, we must remember that we ourselves will stand before this throne. And apart from the mercy and grace of Christ Jesus, you will be judged for every wicked thing that you have ever thought or done in your life. And the only way that you will escape this is by the grace and mercy of Christ Jesus. But in this, it is a glorious pardon. This, as it says in verse 6, is why the gospel was preached. The good news of Jesus Christ being preached that we might be pardoned from our sins, not by the work that we are doing, but by what Christ Jesus has accomplished on the cross, that he has borne our sins in his own body. By repentance, by grace, through faith, there might be salvation. But that there are those who are dead, those that were preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and at the time of Peter's writing this letter are now dead, that those people who were judged in the flesh, so they were maligned, as he is saying, for their following after Christ, but as they enter into eternity, sharing in the resurrection life of Jesus, they might live in the Spirit the way that God does. So this has happened in the past and it is happening also now in the present. But verse 7 goes on, talking about how the end of all things is at hand. There's two different ways that, that Peter is trying to put an imperative on people, to press you to see the realness of these things and the importance of not forgetting about these things. What does he mean that the end of all things is at hand? Because it's been a long time since Peter wrote this letter. It's my understanding that this means that Everything necessary for the completion of salvation other than the second coming, the very last step, all of it has been accomplished by the writing of this letter. The formation of the people of Israel, the rise, fall, restoration of Israel, the coming of the Messiah, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, the sending of the Holy Spirit, the establishing of the church, everything that is a part of the salvation history of God has been accomplished except the last step of the coming of Jesus, a second coming of Christ. And so either by death or by the second coming of Jesus, every one of us will stand before God. It's a warning it's a warning for us to not forget what is said in 2 Peter. As he writes about this, people say this same thing all the time. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Knowing that the first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 
There's no coming second coming of Jesus. Things are just going to continue on as they always have. This is ridiculous. And he uses the, the, the example of Noah that people thought, there's no flood coming. This is ridiculous. God's not going to judge the world. We're going to keep on just doing what we're doing. But comparing this to the second coming of Christ, the first coming to the second coming is important. Because in the first coming of Christ, it was foretold and it was foretold, but people waited and waited and they thought, man, it's been a long time since this was first foretold and yet he still has not come. And yet the timetable of God is different than our timetable. And even when Jesus did come in his long delayed coming in our understanding, the reality of his coming was not fully understood. And even as the reality of his salvation was unfolding and actually changing everything, people still did not understand what was going on until they saw it in retrospect. And I believe that both of these things, or all of these things, will also be true about the second coming of Christ. We long await for it, and it will suddenly come. And even as it is unfolding, we will not fully understand what is happening until this complete salvation of God has been finished, and we have entered into it, and we are looking back upon it. And so now is the time of salvation. As the world declines into decadence and perversion and deception, and as uh, Paul describes it in 2 Timothy, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, slanderous, out of control, brutal, lovers of pleasure, all of these things. But we are called to new life in Christ. We are called to leave behind these old ways and take up new ways, remarkably different ways that are new life in Christ. Quoting Abraham Kuyper, an old Dutch theologian, I love the way he describes this. He says, what is remarkable is the new life is not planted next to the old and wild trees is a new cutting, but new life grows from that old life and draws the life sap from the old trunk and makes, its new, and makes it new and ennobles it. None of the forces from the original creation of our human race are abandoned or undone. Only the wild character that permeated our entire life as a result of sin is undone. And so the idea is that from this old stump of what our life used to be, new growth comes out of it. You're still you when you come to salvation, and the things that you have once done are still there, but they are put away, and they are forgotten, and they fade away, and something new grows out of your life, and you become an altogether different person in Jesus Christ as you grow. And this is what he gets into in verses 7 through the following. Instead of being a person indulging in drunkenness and debauchery, you become a self-controlled person, not giving vent to your corrupt passions. You become a sober-minded person. You become a prayerful person, not a proud and self-sustaining person, but a person that's on your knees, a person that is humble. You become a hospitable person. Instead of a selfish person looking for what other people can do for you, you start looking for what you can do for others, even bringing them into your own home and showing kindness to them. But verse 8 is the key. It's the same key that we see over and over and over and over in the New Testament. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Keep loving one another. It's a continuous thing, and it's to be something that is earnest. We are to love each other in this church earnestly 
and we're to keep on doing it. And one of the beautiful things that comes is what it says next. Love covers a multitude of sins. This love of Christ, this earnest love, is the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's the master virtue of the Christian life, and it is the distinguishing mark of the church. There's a reason why we have this verse framed over here. The world will know us not by how much doctrine we can spout, not by certain works of charitable service that we do, although these things are important. They will know that we have authentically been changed in Christ by the way that we earnestly and continuously love one another. And so this earnest love for one another causes a multitude of sins to be covered. It's an interesting thing, but I think you know what it means. Because you have people that you love in your life, and people that you love, you overlook certain things in their life. You let them pass because you love them. And so in the church, it's supposed to be that way. That petty things we let go of and we let pass. How many times have we been a part of churches where petty things became the destroyer of the congregation? And that's really not about the petty thing. What it shows is the greater uh, aspect of a lack of love in the church. Because if we earnestly keep on loving one another, we will overlook petty things because we care for one another. And when we come to greater, more difficult things, because we love each other, we will sit down and have respectful conversations with each other and work things out in love. We will give each other the benefit of the doubt. We will be patient with each other. We will remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that love bears all things. That's an interesting statement. It means that you will, you will stay with someone because you love them. In some difficult thing that's going on, you will bear up underneath it and you will remain there because of your love. Love, the love of Christ binds together the church community in harmony. And so I, as I have many times, I say to you again, church, let us love one another continuously and earnestly. I love how we have to, you know, basically beat the cowbell up here between services to get people to sit down and start the next service because people love talking to each other and they love praying for each other and they invite each other out for, for lunch afterwards. I heard a, a, a person I was interacting with, a visitor just the other day, saying the first time they came to this church door, they, somebody invited them out to lunch and they just couldn't believe it. They had never been welcomed in that way in their entire life in a church. And this is an indicator of the love of Christ. And so you are a part of that, the way that you treat the people around you. Let us earnestly love one another above all things. And so going on in verse 10, instead of running after the world and bickering and striving against each other, let us recognize that we are given the fruits and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That by the Holy Spirit, each Christian in this church is gifted for the common good 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says that the spiritual gifts that we have been given have been given for the common good, which means the giftedness that God has given to you has been given to you that it might be a blessing to all the people in this church. And the varied giftings of the church come together to produce one healthy body. The work of the Holy Spirit to bring leaders, to being those that are encouragers, those that preach, teach, generous people, evangelists, those that are deeply prayerful, those with musical abilities, those that are exhorters, all kinds of different things come together to create the beauty and the harmony that is the church. In this filling of the Holy Spirit, in this living together, 
brings us all to this understanding that something here is happening that is greater than what we could bring to the table, which causes us to have the conclusion that is given to us here by Peter. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so when we live in this way of putting to death old things, pushing behind us those things that no longer characterize us, and we take up new life in Christ, and we live for Him, and we are pursuing Him, and we are filled by God's Spirit, and different gifts are given to us, and we love the people that are around us instead of tearing them down. There is a whole different way of living that comes together in the community of the church, and all of this results in glory to God. It's not about us. It's about God, who is our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. And we are always speaking about His work in our life and the work of His Spirit in our life to change us. And so we belong to Him. He has dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank You for this passage. I thank You for the way that You're working in this church and that we are seeing these things be true in this place. And I give you glory for that. It's your work. It's not any special program. It's not any particular leader. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst to bring people to himself that they might be forgiven of their sins and be given new life in Christ, freed from their guilt and from death. And Lord, we put away old things and we take up new things. And in that, we want to earnestly love one another from the heart. I pray for this, Lord, that you would help us in this way, that we would not be petty with one another, but that we would earnestly pray for each other, that we would help each other, bear one another's burdens, encourage, be hospitable, all of these things, Lord. In this, may Christ Jesus be glorified in your church, and may the watching world see something so different in this place, and in it, they know that it is Christ, and they come to salvation. Lord, we thank you for this, and we pray now for our time of entering into the Lord's Supper that you would speak to our hearts and that we would never forget the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.